Now uh, let's get into the message. Now we're in part nine of Joseph. Next week will be the last one. I'll preach next week, and then after that is Thanksgiving. Pastor Ray will be speaking, and then after that we'll do something new. And uh, there's so much we could talk about yet on Joseph. We could go and go and go and go. But uh, you know, we'll wrap it up, and we'll come back, I'm sure, to him at some other point in the future. Um, so far up to this point in the series... We have covered chapters 37 to 41. The last two weeks, we finished off chapter 41, and we covered the whole famous part of the story there where Pharaoh gets his dreams, and then Joseph comes out of prison, and he tells you know, Pharaoh's dreams, and now he's been raised up to, to the second in command. So that's where we left off the last two weeks, and now today we pick up from there, and today we're going to cover lots of ground. We'll have more Scripture passages are going to be on the screen today than I've ever had in a message before. We're going to do lots of reading of the Bible because um, we're going to cover three chapters today, okay? We're going to ca- cover chapters 42, 43, and 44, which is all basically one scene. It's one part of the story, and it's the whole scene. Remember now, Joseph is second command in, in Egypt. He's no longer in prison. He's no longer a slave. He's been raised up. And now in these three chapters, we have the whole scene where he is being reunited with his brothers. And there is, I believe, a powerful, there's a number of lessons in there, but I think there's one in particular we're going to talk about today that uh, really is all about what, you know, salvation and God's power at work in our lives that we're going to learn in this story. So bow your heads and close your eyes, and then we will get into this, chapter 42, verse 1, all right? Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this story. We thank you that even though this story is so familiar, you make it new and fresh to us each week. And your word is just like that, and I love it. I pray that your Holy Spirit today, Jesus, I don't want to just speak a message to these people. They don't need to hear Chris talking about some neat things. What they need, what these people need, what, even what I need as I'm speaking, Lord Jesus, is we need to encounter you. And we need you to speak into our hearts, and we need you to change us. That's what we need. We come here desperate for a little encounter with God. And so I pray that you would give that to us this morning as I speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so 42 verse 1, let's hop into this and uh, let's uh, see where this story goes. Of course, now Joseph is second in command and there's a famine going on in Egypt and in the nations around Egypt. And so we pick up here, 42 verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. So just, just a quick pause here. Uh, here we see, you, you remember back at the start of this series, we started this series on July 14th, so we've been here for a couple of months on Joseph, but way back in the first message of the series, we looked in chapter 37, and remember, Jacob played favorites with Joseph, right? Here we are now in the story time, 20 years later, and Jacob is still playing favorites. Now it's with Benjamin, okay? And so again, and it's just so obvious. I mean, can you imagine what it feels like to be one of the other 10 brothers? Uh, and, you know, Jacob is like, you guys go and get the food, but I'm not sending Benjamin because he might get hurt. And essentially what he's saying is, you know, I mean, if you guys get hurt, that's a bad day. But if he gets hurt, then, no, that'll be the end of me, okay? So you guys go and get the food. I'll risk you guys, but I won't risk him. And, and so, of course, that can't feel great to be one of the other ten, right? That can't feel good. Um, but some of you might be, you know, some of you might be newer to this story. Some of you might be older. But even a lot of people who have read this story a lot have, don't make the connection between how Benjamin and Joseph. And I want to talk about that for just a couple minutes. What is the connection? Because some of you might be new to this story. You might be wondering, what's the connection between Benjamin and Joseph? Like, Joseph was the favorite. Twenty years ago, he was the favorite. Now he's off the scene. Jacob has picked a new favorite, it's Benjamin, but how come it's Benjamin? Like, why did Benjamin get picked as the favorite? And the other question is, why is Benjamin singled out here as Joseph's brother? Like, he's specifically, I mean, they're all, aren't they all his brothers, right? They're, they're all Joseph's brothers, but here in this passage, we see Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother. It's almost like Benjamin is specifically singled out as Joseph's brother, um, as above the other brothers. And so the question is, what's the connection between Benjamin and Joseph? And this will be very important for us as we get later into this message and into some of the rest of what happens in this story, is we have to understand the connection between Benjamin and Joseph, okay? And so the answer to the question, you know, aren't they all Joseph's brothers? The answer to that question is actually yes and no, okay? Yes, they are all his brothers, and, but no, they're not all his full brothers, okay? 
And so I've got to put up a little bit of a family tree here. See, Jacob didn't have just one wife, okay? He had two wives and two concubines, and then he had the 12 sons are all you know, spread among those four women, okay? So what we actually have is not 12 full brothers. What we have is a bunch of half-brothers, all right? And this is really important. Now, if you remember the story at all, just to, just to go through it, because Joseph and Benjamin, you'll notice, have the same mother, right? They, have, they both have Rachel as their mother. And if you remember back in the story, if, if you're familiar at all with kind of the background of the story and stuff, which many of you no doubt are, you will remember that Rachel is the only one of these four women that Jacob actually ever loved. Okay? And so let me just give you the Coles Notes version because this is really important for why Joseph and Benjamin end up how they end up. Okay? And why they're favored by Jacob over the other ones. If you remember back, way back to the start of the Jacob story, uh, Jacob deceives his brother Esau and Esau then wants to kill him. So Jacob runs off. And where does he run? He runs to his uncle Laban's house, right? So um, now he gets to Laban's house. And when he's there, Laban has two daughters, okay? And because, uh, you know, Laban is his uncle, these daughters are actually uh, Jacob's cousins. But don't think into that too deeply, all right? So um, he falls really in love with his pretty cousin. Or let's just talk, think about her as, the, you know, the pretty daughter, all right? So um, Laban had, you know, Rachel is the pretty one. The Bible actually tells us that. She was beautiful in form and appearance. And you remember a couple weeks ago we talked about Joseph being handsome in form and appearance. The same, it's interesting, the same thing is said about his mom. So again, he came by it honestly. But Rachel was very beautiful and, and, and Jacob falls in love with her. And, uh, and it says that, he, I mean, he was so smitten with her, he went to his uncle Laban and said, I, I really want to marry Rachel. And so Laban says, yes, and you, all you have to do is work for me seven years. And it says that he worked those seven years, and it says that they were just like a few days to, to Jacob because he was so in love with Rachel. And so he works seven years, and then the big day of the wedding comes. And, uh, you know, a bit of a, a famous story here. And, and, and obviously now they do something a little different with their uh, ceremonies and something with, you know, not having electricity or lights. Um, but as some of you are giggling already, as we know, somehow in the evening, Laban switches Leah for Rachel, okay? So uh, when Jacob wakes up in the morning thinking he's married Rachel, he's actually married Leah, who we're told was kind of plain. And so that must have been quite a shock in the morning. Is, uh, good morning, Rachel. Whoa! Um, you're not Rachel, all right? I married you. And so, uh, you know, understandably, he's upset. He's getting his just desserts, though, right? He's reaping what he sowed. He sowed deception with his brother and with his, his mom and dad, and that's why he ran to Laban in the first place. And he's, he's now reaping deception. And Laban has taken advantage of him, and, and the relationship obviously is a little strained there for a little bit. But Laban says, hey, we have a custom, and you can't marry, you know, the youngest daughter before the oldest daughter has been married off. And, and Jacob's going, you know, you could have told me that before last night, but whatever. So now he's married to Leah. Um, in those days, you were allowed to marry more than one woman. By the way, the Bible does not condone this. A lot of people look at this story and they say, see, the Bible condones polygamy. It does not anywhere condone polygamy. If you read Genesis chapter 2, God's design from the beginning of creation was always one man, one woman. The Bible does not condone polygamy. It just tells the story of what happened. And what we see in this story is that this family tree gets really messed up in, a big, in big part because of polygamy. Okay, so the Bible doesn't condone it. The Bible just tells us it happened, and then we see the disaster that comes as a result. But anyway, Jacob, you know, Jacob said, I wanted to marry Rachel. And Laban said, well, I'll give you Rachel too. You just got to work for me another seven years, okay? And so he, now he has two wives. He's got the two sisters. But he never loved Leah. He's always loved Rachel, okay? And so, I mean, you imagine, I and mean, this is one of the reasons why, uh, you know, polygamy is so bad. It's just a terrible thing. But, but Leah, I mean, you, you feel for Leah and, and, you know, she's not the favored one. And Jacob clearly loves Rachel more. But God in his mercy, God in his more mercy looks on Leah and, and, he, and he gives her sons, okay? And, and that's part of, in, in those days, the biggest thing for a woman was to have kids, okay? And it's different nowadays, but in those days, that's how women found purpose and joy and status in society was to have lots of kids, especially sons, very especially sons. So God, in his mercy on Leah, she's not the favored wife. She's sort of the forgotten, ignored one. Her sister's the favorite, but God looks on her and he has mercy on her, and he gives her four sons right off the bat, okay? He just, one, two, three, four, and you can see him there, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Those are the first four of the 12, and they're all sons of Leah, okay? Now, this creates problems, okay? 
And uh, I mean, anytime you have two wives in the same house, there's going to be problems, guys. But anyway, he's got, you got four and you've got zero and they're keeping track. Okay, and Rachel's the favorite one, but she wants sons. She's behind four nothing, and she's upset. There's friction in the home. I'll show you this. Genesis 30, verses 1 to 2, we see the friction. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in a place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So there's screaming, there's yelling, there's a blowout. And eventually Rachel gets an idea. She can't have kids. Her sister's ahead for nothing. She says, You know what? I'm going to give... Uh, to my husband, Jacob, you've got to take my servant, Bilhah, and you've got to have kids with her, and I'll count those as mine, okay? So this is very sordid. Now, again, a lot of people, they're reading this, so, and that's where Dan and Naphtali come from, okay? So these, Jacob's got four sons now, now he's got five and six, or Dan and Naphtali, from uh, Rachel's servants. And again, a lot of people criticize the Bible. They read this, and they say, what a disgusting story. What a disgusting God. What a disgusting book that you guys read. Like Christianity is just built on this gross book. Let me tell you something. This is gross. This story is sordid, and there is a lot of bad stuff in these stories. But let me tell you something. That is good news for us. It's actually, when I'm reading this, I've been, you know, as I'm studying this this week again, getting ready for this message, but this has happened to me a bunch of times as I've been getting ready for these Joseph messages. As I'm reading this story, yes, it's sorted. Yes, it's messed up. But you know what that says to me? It doesn't say, say to me, we have a gross God. It says to me, good news, exclamation marks, our God is a merciful and patient God. Because if he can work with a family like this, he can work with us. I mean, this is, is that not true? Okay, some of you come from messed up families, all right? Just, th this is a messed up, messed up family, all right? And this is the family that God chooses my people, my promised people, the children of Israel who are going to be my example to the world, I'm going to use a messed up family to do it. And Jesus, see, all of us, we don't get to choose which family we get born into. We don't get to choose it. We're just born into the family, okay? And, but Jesus got to choose to who and when and where, and he chose to be born into these people's descendants. He chose to be born into Judah's, number four there, his descendants, which as we're going to see later in this message, he was especially wicked out of the bunch. So this is, yes, this is a sordid story, but the Bible isn't condoning what's happening. The Bible is actually giving us the good news that God doesn't just give up on messed up people. He loves us and he's patient with us. And that right there is probably enough for us all to go home with a bunch of hope. But anyway, Rachel gives Bilhah to Jacob, which is totally a sick, wicked thing to do. But Bilhah has two kids then with Jacob. And both of those kids become leaders of tribes or fathers of tribes in Israel, God's promised people. It's amazing, God's mercy. Um, of course, so now we have four to two. Um, and Leah's womb has been closed at this point, and she's upset because she wants to be ahead by more than two. So she now gives Jacob Zilpah, very ugly. There's Gad and Asher. Now it's six to two, and then God opens Leah's womb again. She has two more, Issachar and Zebulun. It is now, Jacob now has ten boys, but eight of them are from Leah and her servant, and Rachel has none, and Rachel's servant only has two. And then again, we see God's mercy. Now later on in, in Jacob's life and later on in, in Rachel's life, God in his mercy hears Rachel's heart. Even though everybody in this story is wicked, like nobody is coming out of this looking good. Nobody deserves to hear God answer their prayers in this story. And yet God in his mercy cares about Rachel too. He cares about Leah. He cares about Zilpah. He cares about Bilhah. He cares about Jacob. And in the end, he hears Rachel's prayer too. And, and later on in their lives, uh, he gives Rachel two sons, Joseph, who, and, and, who is number 11 out of the 12, and Benjamin, who's the last one, and Rachel actually dies in childbirth with Benjamin. But now you can see why there's such a close connection with Joseph and Benjamin. They're two full brothers. Everybody else is only their half-brother. These are two full brothers. They're also the youngest. The rest of them are all quite a bit older. And, and you can see now also, now it doesn't excuse it, Jacob should not have favored some sons over others, Okay. He should have loved them all the same. It's not Judah's fault he's born to Leah. It's not Naphtali's fault he's born to, to, to Bilhah. But you can see now why Jacob shows favoritism. It's not that it excuses it, but you can see why. These are his two youngest. They're born in his old age to the one woman he loved in his entire life, who he really loved and, 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 and was a, had an affinity for. And that's why you have Joseph and Benjamin. And Joseph and Benjamin are attached to each other because there's that blood tie. And they're the youngest and all of that. All right, so... 
That's where the connection is. Anyway, and that's going to play into later as the story goes on. Uh, Benjamin and Joseph have this link together, and that's, that's important to making sense of the whole story. Anyway, if we continue on now, uh, Genesis 42, uh, verse 4 again, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. He's already lost, if, you know, and we don't have to put it back up there, but he's already lost on that chart half of Rachel's sons, right? He lost Joseph. He doesn't want to lose his last link to Rachel. And so he doesn't want to send Benjamin with them. Thus, the sons of Israel, and Israel is just the second name God gave to Jacob. So the sons of Jacob came to Egypt to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now, verse 6, we remember back to last couple of weeks, Joseph is now the governor in the land. And so they're coming to Joseph, right? Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Now, we just have to stop here for just a moment. And you have to put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Okay, he is now the governor of Egypt. He has been through 20 years of crazy. Well, 13 years of really, really bad. And now he's been seven years he's been the governor because it's been the seven years of plenty. Now the famine has started, right? So it's been 20 years. He's now 37 years old. This whole story started way back 20 years previous when he was 17. When he was 17 years old, he had two dreams. In one dream, a bunch of sheaves bowed down to him. In another dream, the sun, the moon, and the stars bowed down to him. And already back then, God had given him the interpretation that one day his family would have to bow down to him. All right? And so that's the dream he had 20 years ago. Okay? And now here he is, 20 years later. And that dream has been through so much, hasn't it? I mean, God gave him the dream. And that thing has been killed over and over and over again. Have you ever had a dream just completely killed? Like you felt like God said it to you and now it's been killed? His dream was actually dead repeatedly. Like he gets this dream, my brother's going to bow down to me. Next thing you know, he's sold off into slavery in a faraway land in Egypt. I mean, right there, the dream's over. Joseph, you heard wrong. The dream's dead. It can't come true now. How would your brothers even ever see you again? Never mind you're a slave. They would never bow down to you. The dream's over. It's dead. It's impossible. And then, of course, he works his way up in Potiphar's house. Well, maybe some hope comes back to him. Maybe a reduced version of the dream can come true. Maybe I can become so successful in Potiphar's house that I become kind of like a wealthy man. And sure, I'll never see my brothers again, and I won't really be a king, but, but maybe a reduced version. Maybe the dream just meant I would be successful someday and have a lot of responsibility. But of course, then he gets thrown into a dungeon. Now he's in a dungeon. Nobody knows where he is. How would his brothers ever even find him if they did want to find him? The dream is dead. You're not going to ever be bowed down to by your brothers or your, or your mom or your dad or your family. The dream is over. But then the cupbearer comes to prison, right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And now, oh, this guy knows Pharaoh. I could be released out of prison. And the dream sort of maybe comes alive a little bit again. And then the cupbearer forgets. And over and over and over again, this dream has hit every dead end. Like it, this dream has literally died. It has died, hit a dead end. There's nowhere it can go. It, it won't come true. It's impossible. And here he is 20 years later. And he's standing here as the governor of all of Egypt and his brothers who, who put him through all this stuff are bowing in front of him and now the word comes back to him. Can you imagine how I must have felt? I mean, I don't know if you've ever, I've never experienced it, anything to Joseph's level, for sure not. But I don't know if any of you has ever experienced anything like that, but I've had experiences that are like a scratch of that. It's sort of like the parallel of that, but just not so big. You know, where you get a word, you're at a prayer summit, and someone prays a picture over you, and then after that, or, or wherever, you're, someone prays over you, or you get a word in your devotions, and God gives you this picture, or he gives you a verse, and you're like, cool. And then, and then after you get it, nothing happens. Or the opposite happens, and it looks impossible that it could happen. And, it, and then it just sort of floats out of your mind. You ever have that? You just, you had this prayer time. You wrote it down maybe in your journal. Someone got a picture for you, and then a month passes, two months passes, and the thing just goes out of your mind, and then all of a sudden, like I've had this before too, and many of you have had this before, and then a few months later or a year later, a couple years later, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this thing comes true. And while it's coming true, all of a sudden, God reminds you of the word he gave you way back when. 
And the moment that happens, if, if you've ever, and I know many of you have experienced it, I've had little experiences, not to this level, but you, if you've had that experience, you know what happens then. All of a sudden this comes true and you had forgotten about it. And you go, God is in this. God, there's something, if he tells it to you in advance, and then later all of a sudden it comes true, when it comes back to your mind, you can feel the finger of God, he made this happen. It just floods back into your mind. And, and, you know, if God hadn't given Joseph the dream at the beginning, let's say God didn't give him the, jo- the dream, but he went through all this stuff. When he comes to the end, and he's governor, and, the, and his brothers are bowing to him, he, go, he, he would think, wow, this is really neat. Who would have ever imagined it would have turned out this way, right? This is kind of cool. This is amazing. But the fact that God told him back 20 years earlier when it looked impossible that this would happen, now when he's standing here, the fact that God told him this would happen and now it's happening, when this floods back into his memory, it's not just cool, this is mind-blowing. God is in this. God did this. God's finger is on my life. God's close to me. These are the emotions that are surging through Joseph as he remembered the dreams that he had dreamed to them. And I want to just stop here for just a moment. If I can just tell you something about the prophetic gift. Why does God tell us things like this in advance? I mean, why tell Joseph over here, right? Why tell him in advance? If he's got to go through all this pain, Why tell him in advance? Because then he has to experience disappointment. If you just don't tell him and just let it happen to him, he won't have to be disappointed in, in between. And then at the end, he can be cool. Look what happened to me. But one of the reasons why God tells us stuff, this is not the only reason for the prophetic gift, but one of the reasons why God gives us pictures and gives us words and gives us verses and gives us prophetic words sometimes and dreams in advance. And this is not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons. One of the reasons he does it is not just so you can, a lot of people think you get a prophetic word, now you've got to make it happen. That's not why. Most of the time when God gives you a prophetic word, if I think of many of times when someone's gotten something from me at a prayer summit or when we're at a, at a prayer meeting of some kind or in my devotions, I get something for the future, it, most of the time it has, it's something I can't make it happen. Like Joseph couldn't make the king thing happen. It just, it, it was completely out of control. He was in a river of God's sovereignty flowing one way and he could do nothing about it. So why tell him in advance? I'll tell you why. Because at the end, that's how you know it was, that it's God's will. And a big part of the reason why God gives us these words is not so you can make it happen. The fact of the matter is most of the time when we get these words, after that we just kind of go, huh? I don't know what to do with this. Or maybe it's too big. I'm even a little scared. I, oh, I really don't want to touch this. I don't know what to do with it. But the reason God gave it to you is not so you can do something about it necessarily. Sometimes it is about that. But it's not so you can do something about it necessarily. It's so that when it does happen, you will know it's confirmation. Unmistakably, God is in this and I know I'm where I'm supposed to be. And now you can act with confidence because you know God has put you there and you know he wants you there. That's a big part of the reason for the prophetic gift. He tells you in advance so that when the time comes, you know it was him and you know where you're supposed to be. But anyway, we keep going here. Chapter 42, verse 10. His brothers respond to him. They said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. And that's a lie, right? I mean, we know the story of who these guys are. We are honest men who sold our brother into slavery and lied and deceived to our father. But anyway, we are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Verse 12, Joseph said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We are your servants. We we your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. Now when they say one is no more, they're talking about him, right? And he's right there. And I mean, I think it's about right here. Can you imagine what he's feeling right now? And one is no more, and he's the one is, is, is no more. Uh, I think right there is where I would have just exposed myself to them, not in the indecent way, but as far as to who I am, okay? I just thought about the, <laughs> the word exposed. Man. But uh, I think right there, I wouldn't have been able to hold back any longer. One is right here, okay? And as they cower in fear, all right? But Joseph is more godly than me, fortunately. And... Um, He's not full of bitterness and unforgiveness. And so we continue on, verse 14. But he is going to test them a little bit here. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother. So he's, he's, he's saying, I'm going to keep all of you in jail now. And one of you can go home and, and bring me back your youngest brother. 
or otherwise the rest of you won't be released. Okay? Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Now, we just have to stop here for just a minute. So Joseph now is, is treating, in the famous story, and many of you are familiar with it, but Joseph is now treating his brothers roughly. Now, of course, if I had been in his shoes, and many of us here would have been in his shoes, we probably would have treated our brothers roughly as well. Okay? The difference is, we probably would have treated our brothers roughly for different reasons than Joseph. Okay? We would have probably treated them roughly because we were getting back at them. Okay? But it's very important that you see here. I'm going to show you this yet. Joseph, we have seen the godliness of Joseph throughout this story. How, you know, and last week, about, you know, filled with the Spirit of God and all sorts of stuff. If Joseph is filled with unforgiveness and bitterness at this point, there, then all of that stuff was made up that we talked about so far. Because you can't be filled with the Spirit of God and bitterness and unforgiveness at the same time. It's impossible. Some of you are wondering why the Holy Spirit never seems to speak to you. You're wondering why, you know, when we talk about being filled with the Spirit, it doesn't seem to happen to you, why you don't have fellowship with Jesus or, or the Holy Spirit or anything like that. For some of you, not all of you, there's different reasons, but for some of you, the reason you don't have the Spirit of God in your life is literally because you have bitterness and unforgiveness in your life. That's what you have. It could be about something small, it could be about something big. And that's not Joseph's problem, you have to see that. We've seen him, we've seen how he is other-centered, we have seen, and we're going to see at the end of this story next week, we're going to see how he absolutely, totally forgives his brothers from the heart, Okay, so his reasons here, he's not being rough with them because he's mad at them. And so there's two reasons, okay? There's two reasons why he's being rough with them here. And, and the first one is just he wants to see Benjamin. He really wants to see Benjamin, and he can't trust these guys yet. Like if he just tells them who he is, if he just says, hey guys, I'm Joseph, here's some food, run back and get Benjamin and bring him back to me, they're, they're going to nod yes, and they're never going to be back, right? Because they're going to think this guy's going to murder us all. So they, and these are not trustworthy guys at this point. So he's going to test them. One of the reasons he's not going to tell them who he is and one of the reasons he's going to keep some of them back is because he wants a bargaining chip. Part of his motivation here is he really wants to see Benjamin. It's not that he's got unforgiveness. That's part of the reason. Okay, another big part of the reason is this. And this is where we're going to spend a lot of our time on the rest of this message. Another big part of the reason why he's testing them and being rough with them is he's testing their hearts. He wants to test their hearts. See, it's one thing, if he just tells them, hey, I'm Joseph, do you guys feel sorry at all for what you did? They're all going to say, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry for what we did, Joseph. Of course they are, because they're going to be scared. And he, but he wants to know, have these guys, excuse me, actually changed at all? On the inside, is there any repentance? Is there any remorse for what they did to me? He wants to test them and actually see where their hearts are at. The moment they know who he is, he will never be able to get an honest glimpse of, of how they feel about what they did to him. So he's going to test them now. He's going to be rough with them, but he's not rough with them because he's mad. He's not rough with them because he's bitter or unforgiving or any of that. He's being rough with them for one reason, because he wants them to bring Benjamin back. And the other reason is he wants to actually see what's in their hearts and if these guys have changed and if there's been any repentance, all right? So now let's go and let's read a big chunk of this story now. Chapter 42, verse 18, and let's uh, see him now as he begins to test them, all right? Verse 18. So now he puts them in prison for three days. And, of course, I mean, he was, he spent years, a couple years at least in prison. So, I mean, three days is nothing for them to sit there and be a little worried. And on the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. Okay? If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain. So at the beginning, he says, I'm going to keep you all here and send one home to get, you, to get Benjamin. But uh, then he puts them in the dungeon and he makes them wait there or prison or whatever for three days. On the third day, he says, you know what? I'm going to be nice to you guys. I'm going to only keep one of you here and send the rest of you back to get Benjamin. All right, so that's what he's doing here. So I'm going to let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. I'm going to let the rest of you go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother, you know, back to me. So again, here we see his motivation. He wants to be reunited with Benjamin. He really does. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Okay, verse 21. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning your brother Joseph. Now they're talking about Joseph, but now here's what you have to realize. They don't know. They think he's an Egyptian. They don't know he can speak Hebrew. They don't know he's listening. I mean, have you ever heard the phrase, well, many, this is a common phrase. Well, most of us here have probably used it at some point. Have you ever used the phrase, I wish I could be a fly on the wall? You ever use that one? Like, I wish I could be a fly on the wall when that person 
has this discussion. Because, and what do we mean by that? I wish I could be a fly on the wall. I wish I could be like one of those little flies that comes into your house and he's sitting on the wall and nobody's thinking about him and now they have an honest conversation and I can hear everything they say about me or about this decision or whatever. I wish I could be a fly on the wall just to know what they really think. Okay? Well, Joseph here is getting to live the ultimate fly on the wall experience. Okay? I mean, they're now going to talk about him in front of him no idea that anybody in the room, they just, they don't think the Egyptians can understand their Hebrew language, and so they're going to talk right in front of him, and he's going to get a little window into their soul, all right? So now they're talking in front of Joseph. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, speaking of Joseph, so imagine him hearing them talk about him. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. I talked about this in week one of this series, how they threw him into that pit, and they didn't, he didn't get sold right away. He will have been crying out, please help me, Judah, Reuben. You guys can't be serious. You're not actually going to sell me. You're not actually going to kill me. Imagine this 17-year-old boy. He cries of distress. He's not sitting at the bottom of the pit quietly. He's calling out, please let me out. Guys, don't do this to me. You can't be serious. Please. Anguish cries. I'm hurt down here. And they sit around eating their lunch or whatever they're doing, having their sandwiches, listening to him cry out. That's how hard their hearts were. And then they sold him into slavery. And now they're talking about that. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. And Joseph's hearing them now talk about this event. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered did them, did I not tell you? And there's always one of those in the group, right? Told you so. <laughs> did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you didn't listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. And then Joseph turned away from them and wept. Now, Joseph's not going to stop testing them. You say, well, Joseph, if all he's doing here is testing them to see their hearts, he, I mean, they, they're remorseful, right? They are remorseful. They're expressing it right in front of him, and they don't know he's him. So if, the t if testing is all Joseph's doing, he could stop testing them now. Uh, the problem with that is that there are different levels of repentance and remorse, okay? There's different levels. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of the message now. But there are different levels of repentance and remorse. And it's very important that we understand this because this applies to our lives very much today. And Joseph, they have now exhibited to Joseph one of the levels of repentance and remorse, but it's the very shallowest level, okay? And the two levels of Repentance and remorse are this. There's one level which is self-centered remorse. And self-centered remorse is this. It's when I feel bad because of what I've done, not because of what I did. I don't really feel so much so bad about what I did or how I hurt people or how I hurt God. That's not really what I feel bad about. If you actually mine down, what I feel bad about is the consequences that have come into my life because of what I did. It's a self-centered remorse. And, and this happens in all kinds. I'll just use adultery as an example, but this happens in any and every kind of sin. Um, but I've prayed with lots of guys, whether it be adultery or pornography or whatever, you know, their wife catches them, you know, looking at pornography or they confess something or they, or they you know, they confess that they committed adultery. And then they're in my office a few months later and they're upset. The person who did the crime is in my office and they're the ones who are upset. So I started to talk with them. Why are, why are you upset? I mean, you're the one that committed adultery. You're the one who was addicted to porn and your wife found out. Um, why are you the one that's upset? And, and then they'll tell you, uh, you know, I totally regret what I did. I totally regret that I was in that. Well, then why are you upset? Well, I'm upset because it's been two months now and we're not back to normal yet. Yeah, it's been like a month now and, you know, and she hasn't totally forgiven me yet. It's real cold in the house. Uh, it's been, you know, however long, and what they're actually doing, when you actually mine down, they're not actually upset about what they did. They're not upset about how they hurt somebody else. They're not upset about the wickedness of what they did to God. They're upset because they're now reaping what they're sowing. Life got difficult because of their choices, and so they wish. If they could go back in time, they would change what they did. They regret what they did, but they don't regret what they did because of how it hurt people or how it hurt God. They regret what they did because of how it's now hurting them. Do you see how that is a self-centered level of remorse and repentance? 
And that is exactly the level of repentance that we see the brothers, uh, uh, you know, expressing here in front of Joseph. We see at the end of verse 21 there, it's un underlined, they're, they're, why are they sorry? They're sorry about what they did to Joseph. Why? That is why this distress has come upon us, because of what they're suffering now. And then Reuben goes into his big thing, and we told you we shouldn't have done it. And here's why we shouldn't have done it. Because of how bad it hurt Joseph. No, it doesn't have to do with Joseph. I told you we shouldn't have done it because now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They are understanding now that God is punishing them for what they did to Joseph. They understand that. And they feel bad about what they did to Joseph because of what they're going through now. But that is a very self-centered, shallow, I mean, probably any kind of remorse is better than no remorse. But that is a very shallow level of remorse and repentance, and it is not the kind of remorse or repentance that leads to true life change. It's also not the kind of remorse or repentance that leads to God's favor or any kind of real lasting change in your life, because it's still about me. You did the sin in the first place because it was all about you, and now you regret that you did it because in the end, you don't like what it's doing to you. The Apostle Paul, I want to sit here for just a moment. I, I want to show you, the Apostle Paul talks about a second kind of repentance, a good kind of repentance, and he distinguishes between the two. And actually, Stephen um, talked about this uh, a year and a half ago or so in a message he did, and it's just a powerful point. It just ties in so much with the Joseph story. But I want to show you what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, about different kinds of repentance. And here he, here, here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance. So there's a kind of remorse. There's a kind of a sorrow that comes from God where you look back on something you did, a wicked thing you did, a sinful thing you did, and a godly sorrow. There's a kind of sorrow where you look back at that and it wells up in your life and it produces a repentance without regret. By the way, that without regret thing is a great thing. We're not talking here about condemnation where I just go through my life and I feel bad about sins I confessed a hundred times already. We're talking about, I look back on my life on something I did where I really hurt someone and a godly sore rises up in me, not because of the consequences I now feel, but I'm now experiencing, but because of what a bad thing I did to them and to God. And I feel such a sorrow, it leads to a repentance actually that washes me clean. A repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And then there's a regret that is just of the world, a self-centered regret that has everything to do with, I wish I wouldn't have done that simply because my life is harder now. And I see this with people with financial sins too, not just adultery. I want to make this clear because I'm not just picking on the sexual sins. I see this with financial sins too. People who have regrets for decisions they made because of what they're living with now. And they don't see that actually what they did was not listen to God. They were greedy. They were materialistic. And so they made decisions. No, not in all cases. I'm not saying everybody that has financial problems was greedy or materialistic. Not at all. Not at all. Sometimes people were working as hard as they could. It's part of God's sovereign plan. They went through suffering. There was a bankruptcy, whatever. I'm not talking about that. But sometimes people are in financial problems now because they made a dumb decision. And actually, if they would examine their hearts, their dumb decision was based on greed. It was based on materialism. It was based on all kinds of things, not listening to God and having a hard heart. And now later on, they regret that decision. But they don't regret the decision because of what they did was wicked. If that decision would have made them rich, they would have been happy. They don't regret the decision because of what they did. They regret it because of the consequences they now live with. That is a worldly sorrow that doesn't produce true repentance and it doesn't bring salvation. It doesn't bring God's saving power into your life. There's a kind of repentance Paul talks about that actually changes your life. You feel such a sorrow that God's, that, and, and it just brings about a change, a repentance in your life, and God's saving power comes into your life. Now, I want to just rabbit trail here for just a second because this just ties in totally. I'm, I want to tell you now because it's this exact truth. This is why there's such a difference between people who call themselves Christians. And, and lots of Christians, I'm going to tell you something, lots of Christians have never gone through godly sorrow for any of their sins. Lots of Christians. And one of the reasons is, I'm going to tell you why, is because today, many people are preaching grace to people who aren't ready to hear it. You say, what, what does that mean? We should preach grace all the time. I love God's grace. That's what this message is about. He forgives us. You're going to see that at the end of this message. He forgives us. And I love that truth. But do you know that many people today are Christians 
because they heard the message of grace too soon when they weren't ready to hear it. And you say, well, what does that mean? What I mean is they hear the message of grace before they ever realize that they're sinful. They're just going through their life. They don't even realize they have a problem. They don't realize they're wicked. Nobody's ever showed them. They've never felt in their heart that apart from Jesus, I am absolutely, vilely wicked. And they're just going through life thinking, I'm pretty good. And then someone comes along and says, hey, and by the way, God's grace covers all your sins and you can go to heaven. Huh. I'm going to add that to I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. I never feel how wicked I am. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Don't know why it had to be that extreme because I've never really done anything that bad. But thankfully he did it, and now I'm going to heaven, and this is why you have two groups of people who call themselves Christians. You have some people who call themselves Christians, and, and they have a softness towards God, and they, they have a hunger for his word, and I'm not talking about all the time. There's, you know, even for me, there's, you know, there's lots of days where, you know, it's, it's, I'm not talking about this is like an amusement park, and it's an adventure every time. But if you actually have the Holy Spirit in you, there will be days when you long for this, when you really need the Word of God in your life, and you just long for His promises. And if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you there will be days when you long for Him and where you feel like you need Him and you want Him. And that's why some Christians have that. They have that saving power in them. And I'll tell you why they have the same power in them. It's because they came to a place at some point in their life and the Holy Spirit showed them or whatever where they came to this place of like, I am so wicked apart from Jesus, I need him. That kind of godly sorrow is like a door opening for Jesus. That's his green light signal. I want to be in that person's life. But lots of other people never come to a place of understanding of their own wickedness. And I'm not talking here, I'm not trying to make people all neurotic. I'm not trying to have you guys all go back and question, now, am I saved? Did I ever have an experience where I really wept for my sins? I'm not, I'm not talking about that. Like, it, it, the fruit of salvation is, are you loving Jesus more and more? Do you actually want to follow him? You know, when, when you sin, do you feel bad about your sins? That's a conviction of the Holy Spirit. If you have any of that fruit, you're, you're saved. I'm not talking about becoming neurotic now. But what I'm saying is, if at no point in your life have you ever felt the wickedness of who you are apart from Jesus, if, if you don't carry that with you in any sense, Paul says you, that is necessary to produce a repentance that leads to salvation. See, Jesus, we have this idea that if I just put the label Christian over the door of my heart, if I just, I said a prayer, woohoo, and I, I'm a Christian now, that means Jesus is, is in my heart. Uh, actually, no. Revelation 3. Revelation chapter 3, you go to it, Church of Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. You can look it up later. And Jesus is knocking on the door of a church's hearts. They're supposed to be Christians. Hey, Jesus is in their heart because they're Christians. No, they have a label Christian above their door, but that doesn't mean Jesus is in their heart. In this case, he's knocking to get in. Why? The Bible doesn't say having the label Christian means Jesus is in your heart. Here's how Jesus comes into your heart. He is close to the broken and the humble. He is close to the broken and the humble. So if you are just proud, if you're just hard-hearted, you can call yourself a Christian and have said a prayer, but that's not what leads to salvation. Jesus isn't looking for a label. We don't divide the world up. Jesus doesn't divide the world up into Christians and non-Christians, and he's in all of these people's heart, and he's not in these. He divides the world up into the broken and the non-broken. And the broken and the humble have an open door that Jesus says, that's my green light. That person knows they need me. That person has a godly sorrow over who they are apart from me. And that person, I want to be in there. I could show you scripture after scripture after scripture. He is close to the broken. He is close to the humble. That's who he's close to. And so godly sorrow is this thing of where I come to. I don't just accept Jesus' salvation as this wonderful added bonus in addition to my life. It comes out of brokenness. Jesus, I really need you. Apart from you, I would go to hell. I have been wicked. And out of that comes a repentance. Jesus says, I would love to have fellowship with you. I would love to have fellowship with you. And so Joseph is testing his brothers for that same kind. And there's many parallels between Joseph and Jesus. I'm going to get into that in just a few minutes. But Joseph is testing his brothers and he's not satisfied just to see this level of repentance of they're sorry for what they did to him because they're now in trouble. He wants to see if they've actually changed, if there's a godly sorrow there that has led to them becoming totally different men. And so here's what we see. The testing is going to continue. He's now going to keep Simeon behind 
He's going to keep Simeon in prison. He's going to send the other nine back to get Benjamin. He's going to send them back with food. And of course, they're going to go back to Jacob. And I'm just going to give you the Coles Notes version now of chapter 43 so we can finish with chapter 44, okay? Coles Notes version of chapter 43. They're going to go back. They're going to tell Jacob, Simeon is stuck in a dungeon and he's never coming out unless we bring Benjamin back. And Jacob's going to go, I choose to keep Benjamin, okay? So again, that can't feel good for Simeon, all right? So he's stuck. Jacob's like, no way, no way I'm sending Benjamin over there in exchange for Simeon, okay? And so, of course, God knew, knew that Jacob would do this. And so he just makes the, fa- he keeps the famine in, in their area very intense. And so Jacob and the boys keep living, but now finally they run out of food again and they're all going to die. Jacob, Benjamin, all the brothers are going to die if they, don't, if, if, if they don't go back to Egypt. And finally, this is chapter 43, Jacob gives in and he says, fine, okay, send Benjamin, we're all going to die anyway and see if you can go get more food from the governor of Egypt. And so the brothers come back with, with Benjamin, and this is the whole scene, right? This is the famous banquet scene. They come to, to Joseph, and he, he sets a table for them, and they have a big party, and he, he sits, seats them all in order, exact order from oldest to youngest, the 11 of them, okay? And of course, I mean, if you do that with two brothers, 50-50, okay? He did it by accident, all right? But if you do that with 11 brothers by four different women, okay, that's impressive. And all the brothers are sitting there at, at the table and they're like, how did he know our order? That's crazy. I mean, the chances of getting 11 right, that's not good, okay? And they're wondering. And then this is also the part where, you know, he gives Benjamin five times more than everybody else. And, and really, is that, a, is, is that a good thing? Like, is that a blessing? You know, everybody else gets three pieces of pizza and you get 15 pieces of pizza. <laughs> really love you, Benjamin. Pack it on, buddy. Just... Yikes, like really, like he just has a mound of food, but he gives him five times more, right? And, uh, but then at the end, it comes the real test, because he's not done testing them yet. They've brought back Benjamin. He's been reunited with Benjamin, but he's not ready to reveal himself yet. There's one last test, because again, he wants to see, have they had the godly sorrow, have they had the godly repentance that brings true change, or are they still on the surface living for themselves? So here's his last test. He's going to slip his silver cup into Benjamin's you know, baggage into his sack on the way home. And then what he's going to do is he's going he's to arrest the brothers. He's going to find the sack right in Benjamin's thing, and he's going to pretend that he wants to, to punish Benjamin. And that's where he's going to finally test the other brothers. Because if they're just like they were when, he, when they sold him into slavery, if they're still just a self-centered, wicked lot, they're going to leave Benjamin to rot, and they're going to save their own hides, Right? But if there has been any kind of life change, if there's any repentance in their lives whatsoever, if it's actually genuine of what they did to him, then they will want to give themselves, they will want to stick up for Benjamin and defend him. So let's see what happens, okay? We're going to read chapter 44, the whole chapter starting in verse 1. Then he, that's Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, that's Benjamin, with his money for the grain. And the steward did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. Now, Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks? You have done evil in doing this. Verse 7, they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Because they're going, we haven't done anything. Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Whichever of your servants is found with the cup shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said to them, let it be as you say. He who is found with a cup will be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened it, and he searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. So now the noose is tightened. We're going to see what these guys are really made of. Verse 13, and they tore their clothes, okay? Thinking, I mean, it took them how long to convince their dad to let them bring Benjamin back with them? And now he's the one with the cup. They tore their clothes. Every man loaded his donkey. They returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we, and I want you to notice how he uses we, we are my Lord's servants, both we 
and he also, Benjamin, in whose hand the cup has been found. Now, I have to stop there for just a second. What Judah is doing here is instead of abandoning Benjamin, he's putting them all under the punishment. We're going to take his punishment with him. We're going to do whatever you're going to do to Benjamin. We're going to be there right with him. Now, coming from anybody, you know, we also will be my Lord's servants, both we and he also who took the cup. Coming from anyone, that would be a very brave, loyal, loving, courageous thing to do, would it not? I mean, coming from anybody, that'd be a pretty incredible thing to do. But the thing you have to understand here this morning uh, um, or today is that coming from Judah, this is downright astounding. Because if we go back in time to the beginning of this story, you have to realize Judah is not just one of the brothers who kind of went along with all the bad stuff and it sort of happened and he just went along with it and that's bad enough. The thing you have to realize is Judah was actually the ringleader of what they did to Joseph 20 years earlier. If we go back to the beginning, if you remember back to our first message, you'll remember this, but if we go back to Genesis 37 for just a moment here, look what, look what we find here. When we, this is when Joseph is in the pit. Then Judah said to his brothers, he was, he was the fourth son, but he was the ringleader. He had leadership written all over him, but he used it for, for wickedness there at the beginning of his life. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother's own flesh. Well, thanks for that, Judah. Let's not kill him. Let's actually make some money off of it and sell him into slavery, all right? And his brothers listened to him. He was the leader. He's not, he wasn't just along for the ride. He was the one who, who made the whole thing happen and Joseph knows that. Okay, not only that, you know, Genesis 37 starts the, the story of Joseph. Genesis 50 is the last chapter in the book of Genesis. Those last 14 chapters are all about Joseph. There's more stuff in Genesis about Joseph than any other person, including Abraham. Like, that's a long story. So Genesis 37 to 50, all the chapters are about Joseph except one. Genesis 38 is all about Judah. I didn't preach about that, that chapter at all in this series, and I don't know if I ever could if there's children in the building, Okay. Because that is one of the most vile chapters you will read. The whole chapter is about Judah and how wicked and sexually deviant him and his sons are. They are really bad, okay? So now we come back to this story in Genesis 44. This is not just anyone saying, I, we, we're, gonna, we're sticking with Benjamin. This is one of the most wicked ones in the lot. And I want you to see now, we're going to see the change that true godly sorrow and repentance brings in a person's life. So we pick up the story again. Verse 17, Joseph's going to push them a little further, and we're going to see if what Judah is expressing here is just on the surface or if it's the real thing. Verse 17, chapter 44, But Joseph said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose cut hand the cup was found should be my servant. So he's going to really push hard. I only want to punish Benjamin. As for the rest of you, go up in peace to your father. And so now we're going to read. The rest of this chapter is Judah speaking. And this is just absolutely incredible. This is what godly sorrow, the power of godly sorrow unleashes God's power, saving power into your life. And I want you to see how changed a man. We're going to see Judah go from being one of the worst villains in the entire Old Testament, literally one of the worst, to being an incredibly godly man who will later be blessed. Uh, the Messiah is going to come from his line and all of that. But verse 18, Then Judah went up to him and said, and again, we see him the leader. It's not Reuben going to talk to Joseph. It's, it's Judah. He's the leader of the bunch. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. The last time we were here, my Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother, Joseph, is dead. So again, he, he doesn't realize he's speaking to Joseph. And Benjamin alone is left of his mother's children. That's Rachel's children, and his father loves him. Verse 21. Then you said to us, then you said to your servants, bring your younger brother down to me that I may set my eyes on him. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him your words. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we can't go. If our youngest brother Benjamin goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, speaking of Joseph, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Verse 30. 
Now therefore, when I return to your servant, my father, and Benjamin is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. Verse 32. And now we're going to see Judah's real heart. For I became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please, let your servant, he's speaking of himself now, remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is what godly sorrow and repentance looks like. This man has had an utter change around from being one of the most wicked men in the Old Testament. It was all about him. It was all about getting ahead. It was all about whatever, just wickedness. Godly sorrow has come up in him, and now he is offering his life instead of Benjamin's. He's not even offering the rest of the brothers. He's saying, just punish me. Let Benjamin live. And all he can think about in this whole speech is what is about his dad, who's going to be so sorrowful, and about Benjamin, who's the one who's in trouble. This is what godly sorrow looks like. It produces a repentance, at least a salvation. It doesn't just produce a regret. Like I just feel a little bad because I'm going through a bunch of stuff right now. I actually own the wickedness of who I've been. I've lost my sense of entitlement. I'm not entitled to be treated a certain way. I'm not entitled to be forgiven by everybody and treated normal. I now give myself in his stead. I've been wicked. Take me instead. And he goes to Joseph under the most intense pressure. And Joseph, the moment he sees this, the moment Joseph sees a flash in Judah's heart, he sees this flash of selflessness and love. He knows that he is a different man. And again, this should give us great hope. You know, for much of my life, I've always wondered, why was Judah one of the favored tribes in Israel? Judah is definitely, if you read the rest of the Old Testament, Judah is one of the favored tribes. King David comes from Judah, and Jesus chooses to be born into the tribe of Judah. And Judah, when Israel splits up in the Old Testament, it splits up into two sections. Ten tribes go to northern Israel, and Judah stays back. And Judah is like the good guy in terms of Israel for, for the Old Testament, or better than Israel. I mean, he, he, they do some bad things too, but they're kind of the good guy out of the two sides. And I've often wondered, because when you read chapter 38 of Genesis and you read chapter 37 and what Judah did to Joseph, I've often wondered, Jesus, why did that tribe get so blessed when their father was so wicked? And then when you study this story, the ending of Joseph, you realize why. God didn't bless wicked Judah. The fact of the matter is that Judah's story ends differently. He starts out wicked, but this is the mercy and grace of God. He experiences godly sorrow that leads to true repentance, and he turns, and he now becomes a selfless person to, before God and says, take me instead. This is the Judah, and this is why the blessing of God now comes on his descendants. It's a forgiveness of God. Now, some of you say, you know, like, what does this have to do with me? Well, let's just finish. I'm, I'm going to get there in just a second. It's just amazing to see such a black heart, a black heart, that changes into such a pure selfless heart. That's what repentance does. That's a, it's, just, it's not about me anymore. It's about him. That's what godly sorrow does. And, and it, it immediately breaks down Joseph. Up to this point, Joseph, we don't know how long this whole story took. Maybe about a year for them to come back the second time. Maybe about a year. We don't really know. But this whole time, Joseph's been faking it. He's been pretending that he's mad so he can test them. The moment he gets a flash, he gets a little peek into Judah's new heart and the selflessness and the love there, he can't keep up the facade any longer. The moment he sees what Judah's really become like now, he breaks down, he rushes down, he wants to embrace them, forgive them, hug them, he just wants to be with them. I want to show you this very next verse, 45 verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? And next week we'll finish more with the forgiveness and stuff. But he just, the moment he sees that heart of selflessness, that true repentance, that godly sorrow, the moment he sees that in Judah, it's just, whew, the facade comes down. All he wants to do is be with these guys. That's all he wants. Now you say, okay, well, it's a beautiful story, Chris. Uh, great, we love it. We learn some stuff from it. But what does that part have to do with me? Let me tell you what this has to do with you. 
The thing you have to realize is that throughout the Joseph story, the Holy Spirit set it up that Joseph, in many ways, would be a parallel for us of Jesus. And in this scene, there is no question that God set this up that we would see that Joseph is a parallel for how Jesus is with us. In the same way that Joseph put on this fake, hard exterior and put the, put the brothers through testing because he wanted to see, is there true repentance there? Is there true godly sorrow? He puts them through it. But then the moment he sees that godly sorrow, the moment he sees that brokenheartedness and humility, the facade is gone. It's in the embrace and it's the forgiveness and love. I just want to be with you guys. In the same way, Jesus is with us. He, he pricks us with his Holy Spirit. He gives us his stern commandments and laws. He puts us in tight squeezes. He lets us experience and reap the fruit of the wicked actions we've done. He lets us experience those things. He puts us in tough places. And all along, he is pricking us to see. Does this person see how much they need to be? Does this person actually repent? Does this person have that godly sorrow, that, I, that open heart that I can come in, I can live there? Or is this just a self-centered, hard person who calls himself a Christian? And the moment, the moment Jesus, and there's so much scripture about this, the moment he sees even a peep of brokenheartedness, the moment there's even just a peep of humility, the moment there's even this peep of just, oh Jesus, apart from you I'm nothing, the moment he sees that, it's like Joseph with his brothers, he rushes upon us to embrace us. The Spirit of God, he is close to those who are, who are humble and who are brokenhearted, and he rushes to embrace us and to hold us. And his, and, his, and his power comes into work in our lives and the fruit of the Spirit begins to come and we begin to come alive in him. The moment there's some of that godly sorrow. Now, some of you are sitting there and you're going, well, I just haven't done, to be honest with you, Chris, I don't know how to feel bad about my sins because I really haven't done anything that bad. Isn't that what some of you are feeling? Like, what do I have to feel bad about like I haven't murdered anyone I haven't sold my brother into slavery I haven't committed adultery I haven't done any of the big ones so Chris are you telling me I have to go out and do something really bad so I can feel bad about it so God can come into my heart no that would be stupid don't take that out of this message how do you feel bad if you haven't been super bad enough to feel bad about it right I mean Judah had something to repent from he had something to feel broken about but some of us feel like how could I feel broken? I just live a normal life. I pay my bills. I work hard. I have kids. I'm busy. But I don't do bad stuff. So how does this apply to me? Well, let me help you with that. Have you gossiped in the last week? Any of you? In the last month? You gossiped? Talk bad about someone? You say, well, I don't, I don't really consider myself a gossip. Well, have you said anything about anyone behind their back that you wouldn't say to them? Might be a good indication. Have you trampled on the desires of anyone else in your family, at work? At some point in the last month, you've trampled on the desires of someone else to get your way. Have you do that one? Any of you been proud or self-reliant? Any of you been lustful, had a lustful thought, dwelled on it, lied, slandered someone, cut someone down, cut the church down? Told a dirty joke, had some coarse joking come out of your mouth. Any of you do any of that? Oh, that didn't come to my mind before. I was more thinking of Judah's sins. See, the fact of the matter is, all of those things, if you were actually, this, this just shows how hard our hearts are. Because those things don't bother us, do they? We're, we think, I'd only be bothered if I did that person's sins, like Judah's sin. That was a bad one. I'd feel bad if I did that. But my sins, I don't feel bad about that. That just shows how hard we are. Did you know that if you were walking closely in fellowship with Jesus Christ, when, if you gossiped, the next day you'd be praying, or the day after whatever, you'd be praying, and, and you'd be trying to worship the Lord, and all of a sudden, he would bring that to mind, and it would cause you acute pain in your heart it would cause you acute pain because guess what? Gossip is wicked. It just doesn't seem wicked when you've got a hard heart. Slander is wicked. Lustful thoughts are wicked. They're all wicked. And the fact that we don't own them as wicked and we think they're not bad is part of the reason we don't feel the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in our lives because godly sorrow, Paul says, leads to repentance, which leads to that saving power coming into your life. 
And I'm not talking here about condemnation where I feel bad about sins I've already confessed a hundred times. No, no. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He said, when you have godly sorrow, it leads to repentance where God washes you clean with no regrets. But what I'm talking about is in your life, where the sins in your life, you have an acute awareness of these by the Holy Spirit. And as you pray to God, you come to God and you say, oh Jesus, apart from you, I am nobody. I need you. That's what a broken heart looks like. So I want to leave you with a challenge. I'm going to pray for you and we'll sing a final worship song here. I'm going to leave you a challenge. There's no formula for broken heartedness. But there are things we can do that can help us there. In your devotions this week, daily ask the Lord to graciously begin to reveal to you the selfishness and pride and hardness of your heart. Just that you can see it. Because literally, you, there is a problem. There's a hardness in your heart. I'm not saying you're going to hell or you're not saved. That's not what I'm saying at all. But if, if, there's no, if there's no feeling of a desperate need for Jesus and there's no understanding of how wicked your little sins are, your selfishness and your anger and your pride, when you don't realize how sinful those are, his saving power can't flow through you. You're not living a repentant, broken life. You're living in pride. That is what pride is. It's not just looking in a mirror and saying, I'm amazing. It'd be way too obvious. Nobody would be that proud. Very few anyway. It is exactly thinking that my sins aren't a big deal and I'm doing pretty good without him. Begin to confess regularly. That's why confession should be a regular part of our lives. Number two, ask the Lord to grow you in a humble and contrite spirit. Then listen and write down whatever he shows you. And lastly, there is nothing more precious to Jesus than a humble and contrite heart. There's nothing more precious to him as that. As you begin to walk in this confession and repentance, Begin to take note of how he's actually moving in your life. A lot of people, they come and talk to me. I have no fellowship with the Holy Spirit. I don't know him. I don't hear his voice, blah, 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 blah. Part of it is because of the brokenheartedness. Begin in your devotion and say, Lord, show me my sin. Help me to repent of them so I can be washed clean and filled with your Holy Spirit. I want you to stand now, and I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to sing. The, the weekly challenge, it comes up on the screens afterwards. It'll be in the Weekly Shepherd this week. It'll be online. It's all those things. So there's lots of ways you can... You can get it if you didn't get a chance to get it down just now. But I want to just pray for you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us a proper understanding of how wicked our sins really are so that we can have a godly sorrow, we can own the stuff we've done and repent properly so that in our humility, your saving grace and power, life-changing power can flow into us. I pray that that would begin to happen this week and that we would become a people who are brokenhearted and humble. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.